My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dr. Max Clow. Max is a dear friend of mine. We've known each other coming on something like a decade when we met at a songwriting class at Club Passim in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when Max was studying for his doctoral degree at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's an author, a coach, a speaker, a scholar, and a leadership development consultant, and a songwriter. And he also recently published a book called Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. This conversation looks at the journey that Max took to write that book. But before we get there, we also dive into his current work with the New Politics Leadership Academy, which is a nonprofit dedicated to recruiting and developing military veterans and alumni of national service programs like AmeriCorps and Peace Corps to seek political office. <laughs> what a time to be doing work in politics, right? So we spend some time unpacking the beauty of public servants stepping into the the opportunities and challenges of political leadership. And from there, work more deeply into his dissertation that led him to do this book on race and social change. The central thesis of the, that emerges in the conversation is that how we show up from the inside actively shapes the world around us, the outside. Max calls this the inner flame, a leadership development program that he developed at City Year. And it is deeply rooted in a variety of streams of leadership, scholarship, and human flourishing. If you care at all about what it is to show up for the world as your best self, then this conversation is for you. So, let's get settled in. And hear what Max has for us. Hey Max, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. You and I have had a number of opportunities to think together and dream together and create together. I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed back and forth over the years. And this conversation has been a long time coming, I think. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Great. And I've been a fan of the podcast, been uh, listening to other ones and just really honored to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, this is this feels like the kind of sp space that was designed just for you, right? Like you I just you're such a heartfelt and thoughtful person who has as far as I can tell encountered you as someone who really cares about the fabric that weaves communities together and how that shows up in and places of creativity and places of worship and places of politics. Like I just see you walking through all those worlds with a real commitment to, to the best of everyone. So thank you, man. I'm trying. I'm trying. Thank you. For that. <laughs> yes, you are. 
Yes, you are. So there's so many places we could start, but I found myself this morning as I was thinking about today and preparing for today, the thing that's, that just kept jumping out at me is, is the, the sort of rich well of spirituality and creativity that you draw from, even as you kind of turn and pivot and face towards civic leaders and, and kind of people doing public work you draw from a very private and personal and purposeful well. And I thought maybe we could start there and talk a bit about that. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Sounds yeah. great. You, um, I remember sitting uh, sitting down with coffee for coffee with you one day at Flower Cafe right over by Back Bay Station. And you kind of like, you sort of revealed this Bible that you had had created for me. It was this leadership journey and it had like the flame of leadership and the the sort of layers of leadership. And you had just woven together sources, source material, adaptive leadership stuff, Joseph Campbell's work on mythology. And it was just like, it was such a powerful artifact. I don't know. I think you might've been the first person I, like I had met who had sort of said, yeah, here's what I think about leadership and here's how I teach it. Like, here's the handbook. I want to just, just start there. Like, what was it like to kind of try and create something that you could then teach to other people and have other people learn to teach in a really repeatable way? That strikes me as a pretty huge project to undertake. Yeah. I I mean, you know, in hindsight, it was like a 20 year thing that I didn't even know I was, I, I didn't know what I was aiming towards, but then when it all came together, it's like, that's really what I've been working on for, for years. Um, You know, it's it's funny you start with the spiritual because it is it's a, a very important part of my work that I don't talk about very often. But yeah. you know, there was a time where I thought I was going to be a rabbi, and I uh, I actually went to I did a year in Israel, and one of the reasons why I went was to see if I wanted to check that out. And I have this very clear memory of like I was offered a chance to lead a brief part of a service, and literally every cell in my body was like, "This is not what you are supposed to be doing." It was, I mean, just <laughs> everything was like, "You are not supposed to be in this role." Um, but there was that sense of calling really to, to work with the spiritual, to work with kind of the inner life in that way. Um, and it took years to kind of find a path and it ended up, uh, home base for me was service programs. I'm alum of four different service programs. So, you know, that year in Israel was a service program and I led college students to Ghana and Honduras and Ukraine. And my career was 10 years, you know, after getting a doctorate in leadership, I spent 10 years at city year, which is a national service program. And just, service was, this was my home, like people who wake up every day being of service to others. But what I found was there was there the whole inner dimension of service of how, how do you stay motivated to work on big overwhelming problems? How do you not slide over into despair mm. Uh, just the, the whole kind of piece of inner work, which when I think about my service experiences was always what I was most drawn to of like the, the inner challenges yeah. and how to support, you know, city year was when I got there, there were probably 1500 core members a year. And, you know, by the time I left, it was about 3000 core members a year. So it's a big organization walking, working across the country. And how do you support each one of those folks at, at least invite them to, the possibility that they have an inner journey that they need to attend to while they're immersed in this really intense year Mm. of serving others. Um, Mm. And it was really just years of what are we trying to do? How do we frame it? How do we help people understand it? How do we, 
invite people into this in a way that works for them. And, you know, the end product of that was that idealist journey curriculum um, that grew out of that just years of thinking about this and living it and studying it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, thank you for sharing that. I love your insight that it was sort of 20 years in the making, although you didn't realize it until you're able to sort of look at retrospectively. And it makes me wonder for, for myself and for anyone who's listening, what, what might be waiting for us five years or 10 years or 20 years from now in the making that, that, that emerges as a really powerful artifact, right? Like that's just a wonderful, mm. it's a wonderful possibility that all of us might have some thing or idea or project or expression that comes out of a lifetime of exploration and study and saying, is this it? Nope, that's not it. What about that? But I like that part. I want to bring it over here and connect it. So it's really yeah. cool to see how you wove that all together. You know, I feel moved to share. I had about 10 years, my 20s. I pretty much felt like I was absolutely lost in a forest with no idea what I was doing and kept making these decisions that seemed to just be all over the place. And then I somehow popped out the other side and realized I had walked kind of a straight line through this <laughs> thing and it all fell together exactly the way it was supposed to. So I don't know. It's uh, um, giving me reason to trust that I'm being guided towards what I should be guided towards. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I, when you hear that, I hear kind of a, there's a invitation to those who are in the middle of that kind of like, what the F am I doing with myself moment to trust themselves or have some faith in the ambiguity and, and keep moving and keep, keep trying. Yeah. Right? And that, you know, that curriculum you talk about the idealist journey was, I was a young adult, 22 year old burning with idealism when I did my first service program and that book is what I wish somebody had given to me, hmm. which was basically like, while you're doing all this work to help others, make sure you're paying attention to your own inner life. Because again and again, you're going to be faced with choice points and decisions. And the only place to find the right answer is within. And to say which choice is most aligned with who I want to be and um, my my values and, you know, kind of my, my inner clarity about who I want to be. And that is where, you know, everybody who loves you will have opinions and will give you their perspectives. But again and again, you just have to look within and know your truth. And I just wish somebody older than me had said, so pay attention. Yeah. Um, so you don't have yeah. to like stumble your way into finding that out. Yeah. One thing that's coming up for me and this, this might, I, I know it's true for me. I'm curious if you see this with other because you, your work today, all of your work in some way I've, seems to me is it, at least in part helping younger generations of leaders step into their power as a leader and step into their identity as a leader. And so I, I like think about my own journey. And one mistake I made was bypassing that inner work and sort of substituting it with uh, an external mission or vision, like, hey, this is a great organization. They've got this great mission. It's about helping these people. Check. I've got the purpose piece checked off. And uh, and the sort of short version of that is is four or five years ago, I ended up in a role that was the role that I was, I quote unquote, should have been in. But I was basically a person who went to meetings and sent emails. And it was like, wait a minute. I don't know what, like, I need to connect to my purpose, Right. Whatever, you know, like whatever it is to be Andy, to be an individual in this collective world we live in, whatever that is, I need to figure out what that unique expression is or otherwise 
it's just going to get more and more out of alignment. Yeah. And I, I had a very similar experience and you know, you're right. You, you find an organization or somebody doing mission that you believe in. And then, you know, in service programs, there's just a lot to do and a lot of, you know, serve these kids, tutor these kids, run these programs. Um, it's very easy to just not take a moment to turn inwards and pay attention to who you're becoming and why you're doing this and all of that. And then you end up in these situations where four or five years down the road, you're like, wait, this is, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Or like, I'm just now realizing this lesson, the most important part of my service experience that I just didn't think about until I suddenly got, you know, challenged with the need to understand it in a more deep way. And we can just yeah. do better than having people um, stumble into that years afterwards. Yeah. And that's really the, you yeah. know, we, we can support and guide people to understand that they have to do that work while they're immersed in it. Right. Right. So if you're, if, you're comfortable. I'd love to just unpack the idealist journey a little bit more. Maybe maybe we could start with this image of the torch that's kind of central. Yeah. Is that something you can share? Of course. You know, I'm yeah. actually working on my second book and it's going to be all about this. So I've been oh, thinking good, a lot about good. this. So, you know, I have this image of a flame. It's called the, well, it's City. it was developed at Cityer. Um, and at Cityer, it was the flame of idealism. And, you know, if you can imagine a torch, the handle of the torch is organizational culture and values. And then if you can imagine three nested flames and the outer level of the flame is the do. And then one level within that is the no. And then at the heart, the innermost level of the flame is the be. Hmm. And hmm. it's so simple. Like my five-year-old kid understood it, but it took years of figuring out <laughs> how do you help people understand the interconnectedness of our inner worlds and our outer worlds. Yeah. And the work that we do within and, you know, so I got to City Year, which is an amazing organization. And I said, the one thing I think I can contribute and I think this organization isn't great at right now is organized reflection, um, like individual reflection that invites every core member to do this. And it took years of figuring out. And at first people were like, this is, we don't know how to do this. This is stupid. Like I have better things mm -hmm. to do than sit around and think about things. Mm -hmm. And then when you ask them to do kind of deep work, like crafting their mission or thinking about their values, they would just say, I have kids to tutor. Like this doesn't, how does this connect? Like this is just a, um, and I tried a bunch of different ways of like images and frameworks. And, but when I got to this flame where you can see the relationship between your inner way of being and how that informs everything you know and everything you do, it, just to say, we are going to think about the B level of the flame that sentence captured something that took, like, it was so hard to help people understand what are we mm -hmm. doing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of comically simple thing, but it really solved all these kind of hidden challenges in the work of leadership development that are kind of buried so deep, a lot of people don't even think about them. Right. You know? Right. Right. Why do you think that it is... Why do you think that's so hard? I, I don't, what you're describing to me doesn't seem specific to just the serve, the world of public service, right? Like there are lots of busy people who are doing lots of work and we could get into debate about which work is quote unquote meaningful or not, but across all industries, across all spaces, there are probably people who are like, what? Like reflection, like what? So why, why is that? Why are we at a place where so many people have a hard time with that? Is that, is that an, a developmental challenge? Is that a social challenge? Is it all of the above? Is it something else? Um, you know, what I found was, I think about 10% of the world love it. Introverts, 
They love it. They're, they spend a lot of time and they've thought about this. They think about it all the time. Uh, in my experience, there's also 10% of the world that just hates it. Like, <laughs> how dare you ask me to turn inwards, you know? And then there's 80% of the world where, I, you know, they're, they might be open to it. They don't really fully get it. They're not sure how to do it really well. And, you know, um, but there is no doubt that we live in a world that is just laser focused on outcomes and impact and metrics and measurable stuff. And, you know, I think increasingly is seeing the limitations mm. of just being focused on that stuff and how easy it is to burn people out when you just treat them as cogs in a machine that produces outputs. But then the question of how to invite people who might be skeptical or afraid or resistant, that took me years to figure out. Mm. Um, and I've still seen people who are very sophisticated about understanding ways of being and that stuff who don't really know how to invite people into it in ways that um, move past the resistance that a lot of people have. Yeah. So the torch is the, the kind of simplicity of the torch image sounds like it was part of that ability to invite more people in. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah I actually found that in the absence of a conceptual framework of what are the different ways, like here's a way of understanding leadership development that illuminates the context plus inner work plus outer world impact. And here's how it all fits together. It, it, there was a lot of resistance to just have better things to do. What does this mm -hmm. have to do with anything? Like, you know, this fluffy, hippy trippy stuff. But when you show people an image and you say, if you're ignoring your B, then you are missing the the innermost kind of source of things and people go i, I get that <laughs> okay it might be hard for me i don't like it it's scary like they say a lot of things but they don't say this has nothing to do with what i'm working on or this yeah. is a waste of time or a distraction yeah and what becomes possible then if i'm someone who's like all right i finally get it max i'm going to do this maybe with a little bit of reluctance or a little bit of discomfort like i'm kind of feeling my way into it you stuck with us you persevered at city year and 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 by the end, you had this handbook you could put in somebody's lap and every core member had access to this idealist journey, right? It was just like a pretty big sea change culturally for the organization. What, why, did, why were you able to invite so many people into that? You know, like tell me more um, about how they, what they started to see possible that they couldn't at first. Yeah. You know, it turns out the curriculum itself was the easy part. The culture shift is really, that is really challenging and it's a tribute to city year and to my supervisors who were willing like this thing failed at the beginning i have this very clear memory of they let me do a pilot study and satisfaction ratings were 43 percent. like the majority of people hated this wow. and they could have said no but they didn't and you know i'm eternally grateful um so i just had years to experiment and then slowly grow. You know, it started with one site and then we tried it with five sites with senior core members. And then we tried it with all the senior core members, and then all the core members, like it was year over year, we kind of grew it and built it until, you know, eventually it was just like, this is part of our culture. We are, and it's not just, we have a curriculum. It's, we have a capacity to hold spaces for ourselves that invite this deep learning and we can do it at the national scale. Yeah. And that's, I have to say, I, I, you know, I hadn't heard of any other organization that has that capacity. I still haven't really seen an organization that does that with, you know, thousands of people at dozens of sites. So, yeah. um, but, we, you know, we're, we're doing it at New Politics. It's now like cooked into the organization I'm, I'm at right now. But 
Um, well, I, I get the sense that you were drawn into that organization because for the very reasons of these things that you figured out, it was like here, yeah, yes. here's someone who understands what a program is, not just on the level of implementation, but on the level of like, what is this, who, who are we being as an organization and who are our, who are our, our stakeholders, these people who are trying to help become political leaders, who are they being? Like, it just, it seems like yeah. you were seen yeah. for and that. You know, the the founder of New Politics, Emily Cherniak, she basically said, that's why, that's why we're hiring you. You know, she worked with all these candidates. They had amazing backgrounds. They, it was actually pretty easy to learn how to get on a ballot and how to, you know, like the technical aspect of campaigns, but they didn't know who they were and they didn't know their why. And she said, we need somebody who, who can kind of systematize inviting people into a deeper connection and consciousness of who they are and why they feel called to do this stuff. And mm -hmm. so now that's what we're, that's what we're doing and bringing it into the political space, which is, um, it feels very timely right now. <laughs> yeah, sure. It seems like we it. could use some transformation in the political space. Yes, indeed. And I want to talk about that. Um, but before yeah. we do, I gotta, I gotta underline 43%. Like what was the statistic again? When you did the first pilot yeah. study, like 43% said they, they hated it. Is that what it was? So, you know, we always deal with the percentage of people who say they strongly agree or agree right. that they've, you know, valued this or like, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's always strongly agree or agree. And it was 43%. Which is, you know, horrible, which meant that 57% yeah. yeah. thought this was either mediocre, like like neutral or terrible. Um, yeah. And again, I'm, I'm just eternally grateful to my supervisor at the time who was like, keep trying. We, we'd had one site, City or New Hampshire, that had all their core members were in the 80%. So it was like, there's one site that actually made this thing work. So let's learn from them. And that's literally... Uh... And so we just kept figuring out some core member. And it was, what was amazing was we learned really fast that positional power was kind of irrelevant. It was actually much better to have a senior core member who was like not a staff person. It was a, a core member who came back for a second time who really cared about reflection. It was actually better to have them in charge of this than like a, you know, program director who was much higher up on the org chart, who was just treating it as an initiative from headquarters to, you know, check mm. the box. Mm. Um, and because you, you, the theory of this approach to leadership development is that our way of being influences the impact in the world. And so you needed somebody who kind of owned this initiative at the site who actually really cared about it. Because um, if you had somebody who didn't get it or didn't like it, just trying to make it happen, it wouldn't work. The core members would hate it. You know, so you, I mean, it was really an embodiment of the theory. Yeah, it demonstrated, it actually demonstrated the proof of the theory. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But what you I'm know? struck with just as you as an individual who had, who had made a case for something you really believed in and, and then a, attempted to, to implement it in multiple locations, you know, there's an element of professional risk if it yeah. failed, but there's also maybe, which I've maybe since you weren't as worried about, but certainly there was like, I don't know, to anyone who's ever tried to create anything, I could imagine that that a lot of people would stop there and just the heartbreak would be too much like, wow, 57% of people thought this was not worth the time. How did you, how did you come to terms with that? Like, what was that moment like for you? Um, I mean, it, it was one of the most 
challenging professional moments. You know, we have a culture at City Year of data review of we, we are, you know, we ask for surveys and then we make sure that we sit and look and learn from the results. So it's just a, a culture of you sit down in front of everybody on the team, including the bar and just review the data and see what's going on and make sure we're thinking about it. And I just had to, you know, present the truth and be like, yes, they didn't like it. (laughs) Uh, So it was hard, but I also, you know, I had done service in Israel, a year of service in Israel, which for me went so much deeper than just learning how to be a good English tutor Mm. or how to paint a mural. It was just this, really profound identity experience and spiritual experience. And I just knew there was more, there was more to this and there was a way, there had to be a way to invite people into it and Mm. make it come alive, you know? So I kind of felt a little bit like this is my, this is what I'm called to do. So I just got to keep doing it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, my my deepest like what you're. I feel like you're connecting to one of my deepest wishes for us as a species that we can learn to disconnect ourselves from our failures so that we can stay connected to what we're really after, you know. And what you what I'm hearing, what you were really after was not like a nice rollout of your new program. What you were really after was a sea change in this organizational culture that allowed more people to take care of and tend to their inner fire. And if it didn't work the way you tried it the first time, that almost didn't like, that was the outer layer of the flame again. It's just, okay, we just need to, we can reshape all of that's workable, but inside I'm, I'm, I know this matters and I'm going to keep going until there's absolutely no way to go any further or we make it work in a way that's authentic. Yep. I mean, I definitely had a, everything's an experiment. So we're going to try this, you know, and, and City Year is kind of like the movie Groundhog Day because, you know, it's this 10 month thing and, and, and you have this whole experience and then all the core members lead and you get a whole nother set of new core members <laughs> and you kind of start the whole thing over again and you can just do it over and over again and, oh, you know, things wouldn't work. Yeah. And then, and then we'd like, let's try and solve this problem next year. So we'd come up with something that solved that. And then there'd be another problem and just kept going until it was like, I am kind of running out of problems. This is like, it's, kind of works and it sticks. Yeah. 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 Nice. Nice. Okay. Beautiful. And so now, now uh, fast forward to today and you're doing lots of cool stuff on lots of fronts. You've, you've published this amazing book that you, that I want to talk a bit about. You also, it sounds like you're working on another book. So maybe we can talk a bit about that, but you're also in this role with which you referred to new politics Academy. And maybe you could just say a few words about new politics and we can start to, connect what you did at city year to what you're doing now in the realm of the, of public politics, which is just, as you said, like, gosh, it is a scary, upsetting, intimidating, headache inducing space in our, in our public lives right now. Yeah. Uh, So there, and there's a direct connection between city year to this. So I'm the chief program officer at the new politics leadership Academy. We're a bipartisan, nonprofit that is dedicated to revitalizing American democracy by recruiting, developing, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. Mm. And Mm. specifically what that means is we work with military veterans and alumni of national service programs like AmeriCorps Peace Corps to try and bring more of them into politics and then develop them and prepare them to be the strongest candidates they can be. Um, And, you know, it came from, you know, there's this statistic that in the 70s, 
75% of Congress had served in the military. They were mostly members of the greatest generation with military backgrounds. But, you know, 75% of Congress had that background of, at a very important part of my young adult life, I served alongside people with different backgrounds and put the country above myself. And, and you know, they kind of brought that into politics. Today, the number is less than 20%. It's about 18% of Congress wow. has a service background. And so we won't say causation, but we do think correlation, that one of the reasons we are so stuck and gridlocked and in such, you know, viciously partisan place is because so few of the people in power have had that experience where mm. you have to mm. serve alongside people who are not like you and put the mission first and get the job done and just put your ego at the door. And we think... You know, it's not the lack of those leaders in politics is not because there's a lack of leaders in the country. There's millions mm. of military veterans mm. and and the same a, a million AmeriCorps alumni and something like 250,000 Peace Corps, uh, returned Peace Corps volunteers. They're out there, just only a tiny sliver go into politics. And mm. we are trying to create a pipeline that brings more of them into politics and then supports them in stepping into that crazy, opaque, totally <laughs> bizarre space so that they can succeed as best as possible. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. God, there's so much I want to ask you about. It feels almost um, like the word bipartisan right now feels almost like comical. And yet here are, and and here is an, one, I'm sure of many organizations who's like, no, we're leaning into that. And I wonder if you could just say more about what it looks like to to lean into a space that is truly bipartisan and to invite people, regardless of their, their political party affiliation, to come into a journey together around being the best leader they can be. Like, yeah, what's that been like? it, it's hard is the yeah. first thing. And it's unusual. I don't think there's a lot of organizations that are doing this, especially right now at this moment that is so uh, toxic. But historically service has not been a partisan issue. You know, it's been supported by Republicans and Democrats and for sure, Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody stormed the beaches at Normandy, you know, like service was the place where people came together and got uh -huh. big things done for the country. And, uh, you know, what's amazing is we create this space. Our flagship program is called Answering the Call. And it really was an adaptation of the idealist journey work that started at City Year about how do you create a space that invites people to really get clear about their own sources of purpose and motivation and, and calling. Um, so, you know, we're really clear. We don't start with technical training. We don't start with here's, you know, how to be a good communicator or public speaking. It's if you have served in the past and you're staring at the headlines and have some voice in your soul wondering, maybe it's time for me to step up. Hmm. This is the space for you to hmm. explore those questions in community with other servant leaders, hmm. you know? Hmm. Um, and, what is amazing, and it happened the minute, like from the very first group, is how much of a sense of community and connection these servant leaders feel when they get together. And, you know, it's not all that typical that AmeriCorps members and Peace Corps alumni and military veterans hang out. Like it's, it's not, but even though they served in such different ways, they're just like, I get you. I un, like, we have kind of made similar life choices and I respect you in a way that is unusual in American public life. Yeah. Um, and so we've been, you know, it really is bipartisan and there really are people with different perspectives, but there's such a sense of there's something bigger than us here 
And I respect the life choices you make. And I know that there's lots of people who haven't made those choices. And so it just starts, you know, we had our very first in-person conference in, in DC and it happened to be a couple of days after the announcement that there was going to be an impeachment process. Mm. And, and our debrief of this, we had a day and a half together of, it was very bipartisan. Like it's, you know, it's not 50, 50, but it's, um, but it's probably 75, 25 or something with 25% mm. being Republicans, but it, it is a bipartisan space. And we, we hadn't a day and a half went by. We didn't talk about Trump. We didn't talk about the impeachment. Like these people were in a room respecting each other and thinking about how do we work together to confront our biggest problems? How do we bring character back to politics? Mm. Uh, you know, and it really is, it, it's kind of a beautiful space. Um, and, uh, you know, and we keep waiting for it to like fall apart, we, but these people come together and that commitment to service is so deep that it changes things. Oh, Max. I'm so, so, you know, I was an, I'm an AmeriCorps alumni myself. Sure. I uh, don't try and recruit me. I'm not ever going to run for politics, but uh, yeah, it's not for everybody. <laughs> but I will say as someone who, who really more and more and more believes in the importance of public leadership, I definitely, at, at some point, I think I had this story that, oh, politics is, is kind of BS. The people who go there are the kind are people who only who put self above country, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you sort of say it creates you can see how it creates its, its own kind of negative exactly. feedback loop, right? Exactly. I'm going to go over here and to a place like AmeriCorps where I think the real action is happening, where the people who really care about the country are showing up, because that feels a lot more authentic to me than than politics. But I'm just really enjoying the way that you're, you are connecting those two dots so explicitly and saying, no, the, the problem is the feedback loop. The problem is we think that politics is not a space for us, but actually the truth is it's the space that needs us most. Yeah. I mean, I think and, we're all seeing public service is important. Politics is important. Like, yeah. Life yeah. and death, we are seeing, you yeah. know, when you have people who are not focused on really being of service. Yeah. Um, and you're exactly right. I think a lot of service people are, are, are avoid politics because it's such a toxic, I mean, the cultures couldn't be more different, you know, but I think a lot of people are seeing, you know, if I'm not showing up, then the folks who are showing up are folks driven by ego or hungers for power or control or whatever it is. And uh, it's not okay, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So what's the ideal, like, what's the ideal end game? If I'm, if I'm a part of the new politics leadership Academy, that means at some point I'm going to be running for political office somewhere in the country and, and whether I win or lose is outside my control, but I'm going to, with your support in the Academy, I'm going to stay really anchored in what I care about and what I'm called to. And I'm going to center that in my campaign and any work that I do. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. You know, if you really believe that there is this connection between our inner way of being and the impact we have in the world, um, it matters to get really clear, uh, you know, both as a candidate, when you can say, these are my values, this is why I'm doing this, people feel that clarity. Mm. And they also feel it if you don't have it. You know, so as mm -hmm. a candidate, it's just part of being the strongest candidate you can is to have done the work and it is, it's work. It takes time. So, you know, some people, it's really hard to get sift through all the noise and stuff to really get clear about that stuff. But then when you're 
elected, you, I mean, part of politics is about everybody wants a piece of you, everybody trying to influence you and push you to, you know, advance their agenda. And the essence of politics is knowing your true north mm. and knowing mm. what you can do and what is within the realm of um, moving things forward without losing yourself. You know, there has to be compromise. Like we're very clear. We're not trying to train ideological purists who don't give an inch on anything. Like to move things forward in the world, it does take compromise. But this question of, is this a compromise that I can look myself in the mirror and say, this is, this is acceptable or is this too far for me? That mm. just takes the kind of inner clarity it, um, where you really know who you are can, can be really thoughtful and, uh, you know, have the level of self-awareness to see, to understand where that line is drawn. Yeah. It strikes me also that there's got to be a quality of, and this really uh, comes from our, uh, at least I'm, I'm thinking of our shared interest in adaptive leadership work and the idea of, of depersonalizing yourself from whatever role that you play like that as a leadership move that whatever people are coming at you about, it's actually not about who you are as a person uh, in a sense. It's about what role you play in whatever system you're part of. And so politicians play an exceedingly public role. And to your point, people are always coming. I want to influence you. I want something from you. I want you to vote this way. Uh, I'm going to disparage your family. I'm going to say, I'm going to, you know, like there's just all of this stuff coming at you. So how do you help people that like this, that takes a certain kind of constitution to hold steady at that level of public visibility when uh, people might try and smear you or they're debating you or they misunderstand you or they question your credibility or all, any number of things that can happen that are just like you read about it in the paper the next day and you're like, who are they talking about? Who yeah. is this person they're writing about? Yeah, absolutely. Me. Absolutely. It's very real. And you, you've named what I consider to be kind of the essential spiritual challenge for servant leaders thinking mm. about politics, mm. which is these are all people who have been most comfortable being part of a team, working alongside others, putting other people at the center, you know, um, they're happiest when they are serving others and it's not about them. And that's kind of a, a spiritual way to be. And then politics is you are putting yourself in the spotlight. It is making yourself central in a way that is you know, uncomfortable for, I think, everybody, but particularly for sermon leaders, it's just kind of so challenging. But there's this kind of deep spiritual work to realize it has to be about you in a way it's never been before. But at the deepest level, you're also really just a vessel trying to bring the values that you care about into the world, hmm. you know? Hmm. So it's your name on the signs and your face on the, you know, website and the and, but really the values that you are, you're a link in a chain, you are trying to, these values came to you from somebody before you, you want to bring them into the world so that the next generation can experience them. And it's, it's not about you, even though it's all about you. And, you know, uh, holding that within the self is just hard. Um, but that's part of the work. Yeah. I'm almost getting a hit. Um, yeah, I'm getting your torch again. And, and it's almost as if, as if we, if we could even zoom in even deeper inside the bee, like how you're being in the world, there's maybe another layer of the flame, which is like, what are you being for? Or, 
you know, what is it, what is it that you're letting come through? What is it that your flame is shining for? Absolutely. And there's just a lovely paradox in there. And that if we can get totally aligned with who we are and what we're good at and what we care about, then all of the, the stuff that people might criticize us for, how we look, how we speak, uh, where we're from, what we did do, what we didn't do. Like, it's almost like they could just say anything about us. And we're like, it doesn't matter. You can believe that if you want. Yeah, Here's I mean, what listen, I'm about. you know, I do a lot of coaching of candidates. And what always amazes me is how profoundly human they are. Like that stuff hurts. It, yeah. Like it, it'd just be a lie to say that anybody can kind of walk that path and it just really rolls off. It is hard to see your name slandered and your, mm-hmm. you know, businesses you've spent years building, getting challenged and, you know, your reputation being, you know, smeared. It's, it's just hard, but underneath it is what do I care about enough to mm-hmm. fight like hell for? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's not okay to, to, to say, I care about this stuff and then just sit on the sidelines. So, you know, we, we both are grounded in adaptive leadership and, you know, the Indo-European root of leadership is to go forth to die. Like it is to step into dangerous places to fight for what you believe in. And that's what politics is. That's what it's about, you know? Um, But, and again and again with candidates, they say what got them through the hit pieces and the attack ads was they were thrown back on themselves and just had to revisit what's my why? Mm. Why am I doing this? And mm. that that is what pulled them through. That's what helps them stay resilient. That's what helps you know push through the to election day and beyond. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, that's really lands with me. There's not some there's not some uh, perfect future spiritually enlightened place where you can just kind of glide through the mess without getting touched. It's going to touch you in in many cases, very, very deeply right to the center of who you are and what you stand for. But the question is, what do you anchor back in so that you can stand up again and keep going? How do you sort of refill that well, even when it gets, when it gets emptied out? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things with this answering the call program where people are invited to just be honest, what are your aspirations and what are your insecurities and what, you know, keeps you from considering this path and just how human it is. And the people who actually run for office, it's not that they don't have the same doubts and questions and insecurities. They have it all and they just keep, they do it anyway, you know, and they're no different from any of us who are looking around like, who am I to do this? And is this something I can do to my family? And do I have the money for this? And that, um, they have all of that and they find a way. And I think it's just very empowering to realize how human these folks are. Gosh, yeah. And actually what you're evoking in me right now is is maybe more empathy than I've ever really connected with for the choice that they've just made, right? Like it's easy, I think it's really easy to forget that someone who is a polit who has said, I'm going to run for political office. We maybe imagine some sort of vague upside of like, well, now they they want power, now they have power, right? But actually, like, there's a huge sacrifice. There are a number of huge sacrifices huge. that they're that they're huge. committing to, on behalf of ideally something greater, up on behalf of this call that you're inviting them into, and that it's going to have an impact not just on them but on their family, on their finances, on their friendships, on their social life, like 
all of the things that the rest of us sitting in the wings kind of take for granted, they're really put centering it and saying, what choice am I making here? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And just, you know, the reason that we don't start with technical trainings or motivational seminars or rah, rah, hey, you can do this. You know, we don't do that. The only motivation that makes sense is to say, I will not have integrity with myself if I don't step into the arena. Mm. That Mm. is, it has to start there because it's just hard and exhausting and there's sacrifice, all kinds of sacrifices. But for these folks who just realize like, this is the moment, this is the time, like uh, I need to take a stand. I need to, you know, there's never a guarantee you can win. I always say, if you're only going to run, if you're sure you're going to win, you're never going to run because that's not the Mm. way it works. Mm. But you're willing to get get into the arena and fight like hell. Mm. And, uh, some some folks win, and then you have power to create some change. Yeah, damn. Thank you, Max. This is like I I in the midst of it, we're what's the date today? Like the nineteenth or something. yeah, we're two weeks out. We're two we're weeks two out. weeks out from our current public presidential election. By the time people listen to this, we will be on the other side of it, and we will feel all the feelings associated with whatever that outcome is. And no matter what happens, we can guarantee that that American politics has already changed quite a lot. So I feel really hopeful and nourished to be reminded that there is, there are groups of people completely out of my public, you know, the awareness of most people in the public who are right now at at tables having the kind of conversations and feeling into the kinds of questions of integrity and calling that we so sorely need right now. Yeah. That makes me really hopeful. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. Is this so, is this, how does this connect to the, is this partly what your new book is about? Like, tell me more about what your, how are you trying to distill this for a broader audience? You know, the tentative title of the book is The Flame in the Journey. And so it's explaining, you know, I gave you a little brief story, but just the, the, the journey to get to the flame, that image, yeah. and then the journey to the, you know, the, um, this journey model that I've used, which is inviting people into inner work very much. And it's very much Joseph Campbell inspired of inviting people into their own hero's journey where you leave behind what is familiar and comfortable. And then you face some really powerful tests and challenges that, you know, in confronting those things, you change the world around you. And also you discover within yourself hidden resources that you were only able to access because you went past what you thought you could possibly achieve. And then it never ends there. It ends with a return where you take everything you've learned from your struggles and you use it to be of service to others. Mm. And it took again, years to kind of frame that and figure out how to invite people into it and um, guide people through that while they're immersed in a really challenging, intense experience. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I just feel like it's, it's been years of work for me and it's time to just, explain it to the world and let people understand kind of what it took to get there and what's the, how leadership theory informs it and how it works in the world. Um, and, and that it's been kind of battle tested with thousands of people and now with politicians kind of in, in the most brutal service environments you can imagine. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, ideas. It's really been created through the, the crucible of real life experience. Yeah. And it sounds like it's for anyone 
who feels called to any kind of journey of impact, not not just for politicians or public servants. Agreed, for, agreed. In the nonprofit, even if you're like kind of a mission-driven for-profit company, this question of how to live with purpose and not just be kind of a drone, uh, like a, you know, obedience and conforming, doing their job. I, I, I think that we need it in our politics. We need it in our nonprofit spaces. But I also think in the, in the for-profit world, we're finding the companies that are able to harness purpose are, they do the most good and they make the most money, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, but I, you know, again, I feel like it's ideas that solve problems buried in leadership development and it's time to just explain it, like how, how, how it came to be and what it can do in the world. Oh man, I can't wait. How, do you have a, are you just in it right now and it's hard to say when it'll be ready or are you Yeah, I have three chapters out of like seven. So I've been making progress. That's the real deal right there. Yeah. I got something to share, but uh, it's going to take some work. Yeah. Yeah, it always does. Stay tuned. Okay, we will. Maybe when it's ready, we can have you back on to like it's a deal. go it's deeper. A deal. All right, Great. lovely. So there's this. There's this. Um, I was about to say there's this other piece of your journey in a way that makes it seem separate from everything we've been talking about, but actually, I think it's really intimately connected yes. to what we're talking about. And and it's, this is the first book that you wrote, which um, is called "Race and Social Change: A Quest, a Study, a Call to Action." And, um, like since I've known you, one of the kind of through lines around public service and leadership development is this question of, of what it means to be an equitable, inclusive, and truly just society or to build just communities, inclusive communities. So, even though we haven't we're, we haven't surfaced that yet, it's sort of embedded in everything we've already talked about. Would you agree with that? Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So maybe you could say more. Maybe for those of us who are like, wait, okay, now we're talking about race yeah. and social change. Like, could you could you help us tie the dots? Why did you write this book, and why does it connect to these questions of calling and being and, and sure. sort of stepping up into public service? Sure. So, I mean, one quick answer is this was my dissertation. I got my doctorate in 2005 from the Harvard School of Education, and this was my dissertation, and um, which I'll explain a little bit more in a moment. But then about 10 years later, I, you know, I went to work at City Year and kind of didn't think about it. Well, I, I, you know, I did not look at my dissertation for a long time. But then there was the incident with Michael Brown. There was yet another wave of black men being killed. Um, and I just felt like I really felt like I will not have peace if I don't put this out there in the world. I think it's a contribution and it just has to be. So I rewrote the whole thing, turned it into a, turned it into a book and got it out there in the world. Um, and you're right. It's, it's a whole way of thinking that informs everything I do, but it does feel a little bit like, like my, my day job is not fundamentally in the like diversity, equity and inclusion space. Um, I, you know, I consider myself a leadership development person, you know, scholar, author, coach, that sort of thing. And what happened was I was doing research into youth leadership, trying to understand how different organizations thought about youth leadership, taught youth leadership. And I stumbled on this program called Camp Anytown, which was this week-long residential kind of diversity program for high school kids. Mm. And what I happened to witness was on the last day of the program, they do this exercise where... Um, you know, the kids line up in a circle as they did every morning. And then instead of going into breakfast, they get 
told to break up into groups, whites, Asians, Jews, Latinos, LGBTQ, Blacks. And they're told, stay in your small group and don't make eye contact with anybody else. You know, and and then they, they go into breakfast and the white kids go first and get double servings in a big table and every lower level in the hierarchy kind of gets less food and less, you know, so the black kids have very little food and sit on the floor type of thing. Um, and which is, was super intense. And as I talk very clearly about in the book, raises some very important ethical questions that I had to think a lot about. But what it is, was a simulated Jim Crow style social system. Mm. And where they kind of create these, these dynamics of hierarchy and segregation. And then between breakfast and lunch, the kids challenge the system. And what I saw watching was a miniature civil rights movement. And I was like, as to the extent that you can empirically observe social change, this is the closest thing I've ever seen. And I just, I was, I was like, I have to, this has to be what I study, you know? Wow. Um, so I spent the next three years of my life studying three more of them and researching them and, and analyzing them, writing them up. And, you know, but it was a chance to bring the tools of empiricism to understanding entire systems and how they undergo this process of social change hmm. and some really powerful stuff emerged from it, you know? And so that was my dissertation in 2005. And then I had to kind of turn it into a book and write it in, a, in, a, in just a different kind of way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but it really, invites people to zoom out and see the system and think about what does it mean to be part of an entire system that is undergoing a process of transformation. And to say it's relevant to current events is an <laughs> understatement. It's really, yeah. you know, I, I wish it wasn't so relevant, but it's, uh, it provides, I think, a, a powerful way of understanding what's going on and brings this lens of complex systems into this discussion of race and social change. Yeah. And I just think, you know, it, I hadn't seen that done quite this way. So, so I actually would, I love that. And I, I'm hearing the, that moment of integrity you just described. I, I can't, just like you talked about with the public servant who says, okay, I'm going to run for politics. I'm going to make all these choices that, that, sacrifice time, money, energy, like all of it. I have to do it because if I sit on the sidelines, I'll be out of integrity. I hear that. And it's like, yeah, I spent all this time researching this stuff, learning about it. There's so much in here. I'm just a vessel for it. And I have, and I happen to have at my fingertips, all of this, I need to share it. Yeah. And I'm going to do that by rewriting it in a way that's more accessible. So, cause most folks aren't going to pick up a dissertation and read right. it. Right. Right. So right. that's beautiful. But there's like your eyes lit up in that moment when you described seeing a, a miniature civil rights movement in action. And I wonder if you could just take us in a bit more to to this exercise and what you saw, because before yeah. you said that, the intensity of what you're describing was really affecting me. I was like, oh, man, like that sounds pretty wild. Yes. To be a, a high right. schooler. Yeah in a setting where suddenly your counselors or your leaders are saying, okay, you have to sit over there because of your affiliation with this yes. group. And this is, you get all these, this food and you don't get any food. That's like, whew, that's, yeah. I imagine you know, that brought up a lot. Yes. And I've, I'm still in the process of figuring out how to present it in a way that people are able to work with it in a productive way. Cause it, yeah. and, and again, in the book, I talk a lot about the ethics, you know, I mentioned it falls in line with this whole, 
tradition of social psychology experiments that are infamous and really challenging, like the Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, the brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment. I'm sure mm -hmm. some listeners have heard about these things. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. um, well-known because they're so provocative and challenging. And I was like, this just fits right in with that whole tradition of ethically <laughs> challenging, but also yeah. uh, very illuminating exercises. Yeah. And Part of my story is my personal journey, which is, you know, I grew up a middle-class straight white kid in a suburb of Connecticut, really in a bubble and, you know, had a social justice nerve, come from a Jewish family that thinks a lot about justice. And, um, and I had always just been fascinated by race. I, it was clear it was very important to America. This is really a profound, important issue. And I just didn't understand it. I just, I didn't understand how things would happen and everybody would see different things in it. Mm -hmm. And nobody could agree on even what was true. And I really lived with the question for a long time mm -hmm. of just what is, what is going on? And, you know, you could hear individual stories, um, and people's personal experiences. And then you could study history and things like, India and South Africa and these, you know, movements of major social change. And just how does all this stuff fit together and work? How do you get from the individual experience to the system? And, you know, I just had all these questions kind of burning in my soul. And then I watched this thing. I was like, this is everything wow. going on at the same time in a way that is observable and, you know, researchable. So, um, yeah, and again, I, I kind of felt like it's, I, I could not ignore the call. Yeah. I just couldn't yeah. walk away, yeah. you know? Hmm. Hmm. And, and so there is that first day, the first time of three or four times that you witnessed this, something, so, lots of things were happening in this group of, of young people. Yeah. But something, you talked about them starting to, what was the language you used? You talked about them starting to push against the system or to yeah. work against the system. And that's like, so say more about what happened there and that microcosm that you just couldn't not look at. Yeah, well, you know, in the first one that I observed, you know, they create this, they create these kind of rules of you have to stay separate and you can't talk to other people. And then there's this whole, system of privilege and oppression where, you know, the white kids get to go play Frisbee and the brown kids have to clean up the cafeteria and the, you know, like they recreate all that stuff. And in every case, at least two hours passed of just kind of everybody really being uncomfortable, but kind of nothing happening. And then the, the first time I saw this, then eventually it was always a person of color, a student of color, who's just like enough like just breaks the rules, goes over and talks to some other group and is just like, this is BS. We have to stop following these rules. We have to come together. We have to bring unity to Camp Anytown. And so you get this uh, resistance that always began from people of color. And within 10 minutes, there was this like emergence of a nonviolent protest movement that just the entire system transformed. After two hours of like stasis, suffocating nothingness. You got this incredible wave of change that shaped, you know, re reshaped the whole system, um, you know, in, in ways that really kind of mirrored, you know, in our own little microcosm events in the real world, you know, in the 
in the civil rights movement in the real world. And so I said, I have to watch three of those. And then the three things went very differently. And it took me years to just, how do you even think about what, how these systems work? And part of what comes out in the book is how kind of counterintuitive mm. and strange mm. it is to understand how these systems work, mm. you know? Mm. And I'll, you know, the, the deepest thing was each of the ones, each of the, the experiments, exercises I observed unfolded in completely different ways. And after years of analysis, it seemed to be that the inner way of being of the people in charge created kind of a relational field that made some things possible and other things not possible. You mean like and the camp staff who are orchestrating the, camp, the ex exercise? Yes. And because, right. you know, one of these that I observed was just incredibly creative and dynamic and really like had this real world civil rights movement. One of them totally fizzled, like just very little happened. And there was another one where the educators kind of made this choice to bring everybody together for a song session that really pulled people's heartstrings, but people did not leave feeling empowered. Like when you looked at the data, so they all went totally differently. And why did they go differently? And, you know, and it came down to the inner way of being of the people in charge led to certain decisions and, and just created kind of a, a field. And some of those fields were incredibly dynamic and creative and empowering. And some of them were just like nothing, just mm -hmm. like, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, you know, I explain it in the book. There's, there's a lot of complexity to it, but the underlying idea of when you zoom out fully to that systems level, you see vividly how our inner way of being calls forth a whole reality mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. in ways that really, you know, reinforced my belief in this working on ways of being along with service to others, because, you know, the systems around us are actually manifestations of our inner way of being. And if we shift our inner way of being, that is an essential prerequisite to shifting the systems in the world around us. And I think a lot of people don't understand how deep that goes. Yeah. The thank you for sharing that. There's a lot from coming up for me. One thing that I want to interrogate a little bit is this this I'm not even quite sure how to put it into words, but it feels important your insight about inner way of being. Like that it's not a it's that it is a two-way or maybe a maybe an infinite way street. Like there's there is the there's a constant engagement with who we are inside and the world around us and the environment yes. around us. Yes. And that to be that student, the first, the first iteration you saw to be the, the, to be the student of color who says enough of this bullshit, we got to do something different is both uh, an expression of like what kind of container or field the staff made Yes. And also an expression of whatever it was that's going on inside of that yes. young person. Yes. And they're in, so there's sort of this super dynamic, just like pinging back and forth of how all of us care for and show up for each other and believe in ourselves and believe in each other or don't or believe like all of that's happening in real time. So I feel like there it's, it, there's just sort of this sense that in some way to be the young, to be the person who is on the receiving end of the systemic oppression 
and to still have the have capacity or to be expected to have the capacity to stand up and change yes. things yes is like like that is yes. really intense to me and so much of what happens at systems is is kind of holding opposites and working with this yes and and yes there are these incredibly oppressive systems that do exist and we're all immersed in them and we really do have incredible individual power to shift things and to hold both of those things is, is a challenge, but that's kind of what emerged from this. And, you know, part of it is like seeing how the way of being of the authority figure called forth energies from the group. And then, you know, soon after rewriting the book, right when the book got published actually was 2016 Trump, Trump just got elected. Mm. And, you know, the theory is he would call forth energies that exist in his way of being. And so it's like you see the racism, you see the white supremacism, you, you see the violence and the cruelty. It, it gets called forth. It, it is mm. Mm. awakened. Mm. It has been dormant and it's awakened. And if somebody else was in charge, they would have a different, maybe they'd call forth compassion. Maybe they'd call forth empathy. Um, but you know, I do think you can see it happen at the largest scale mm. and you could see it in these little, you know, 30 person exercises at a summer camp. Um, but it provides a, I mean, I had been immersed in this for years trying to understand it and it took a while to like, so what is, what is the essence? What is really going on here? And then to understand how important it is for each of us to kind of do our own work because, at whatever level of the system we are working at, we are calling forth the reality around us, whether it's our family or our work or our, we are co-creating things. And if we shift our way of being, we start co-creating different things. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is, that is not fluffy or that's like empirically empirical study leads to this awareness of how this stuff works. Yeah. And it, it really makes leaves me with a question as we come come into the home stretch of our conversation. I read recently that, and this is another empirical piece of what you're talking about, that it's something like it takes 3.5% of a population in any given context who who nonviolently resist or protest a system for that system to start to change. Yeah. Which speaks to like, okay, I'm the one student and I want to be careful there. Cause I want, I don't want to put the burden on that one student to like be the one who has to step up, but there's sort of it. I think there's a, one of the, the energies we have, I sense we have co-created for each other is the belief that only people who have the, wear the robes of authority have that, that influence that you're describing, which is both kind of like, a visible measurable influence, but also this kind of way of being influenced. They're calling out from us, whatever it is they're projecting into the space. we kind of give, we, we think they're the only ones who have that, but actually if a, enough of us, whoever us is come together and start to put our own energy into the system, you know, and that doesn't actually have to be a huge number. I mean, 3.5% of how many people are in America? I don't know, like 300 million people right now. Right. So so there's this sort of, um, I'm just excited by what you're sharing around how we might like actually, what it might actually mean for us to reimagine this experiment that we call America. 
and yeah. who actually needs to, who and how actually needs to step up for that to happen. Yeah. You know, part of the work, and I think it leads directly to the new politics work is what does it mean to fully own the power that we do have? Mm. Even recognizing we're in this huge, vast system where we are just a speck of dust, really, you know, uh, um, but what if we fully owned our power? And, you know, I'm a dad. I have power in my family. Um, I, I work for an organization. I have power in the organization. I'm a member of a synagogue. I have, you know, influence. They're like in my little part of the world, I am influencing things. And if I work on my way of being, if I am really clear, this is, this is, these are the values I aspire to bring into the world. This is the mission I aspire to work towards. Then in my little corner, and that's all any of us get in our little corner, it matters, you know? And if we step up for the school board or the Congress or what, like, you know, um, fully own the power that we do have to influence others, even while understanding how small we are in the face of it all, that is the spiritual challenge each of us has before us. Yeah. So this totally feels like we need to have a part two conversation and maybe when your book's ready, we can, because there's then the question of what is that, how might that look like and feel like to, to, to really start that journey from whatever corner you're standing in. But I'm yes. really touched by that possibility and I appreciate Max, all that you do and all the ways that you step out from your little corner to share your gifts and your insights. I'm really, really grateful to you for that. Thank you. And I say it back to you. I love how you are creating these spaces and, and inviting these conversations. And I'm inspired and challenged a little bit by the way you are stepping out and living so powerfully. So oh, right on, man. Thanks for the Thank thoughtful you. questions. Yeah. For people listening, if they want to um, check out more, where should they go find you on, on the vast interwebs? So my website is maxcloud.com, M-A-X-K-L-A-U.com. And you can find about my book. And if you want to learn more about New Politics Academy, it's uh, newpoliticsacademy.org. And we do have a podcast, the New Politics Podcast, that you can find wherever podcasts are, are done. And I host that and talk to various servant leaders who have tried to get into politics. And um, that's where you can learn more. Yeah, awesome. As of as of this recording, you you just put out like episode six of that podcast, right? Yes. And yep. by the time people hear this, maybe we'll be up to ten or something like that. It's uh, but I love it, man. I'm really excited for you to to also have a space like this to invite the, these servant leaders to share their journey because I just we need to hear more of that. We need to hear yes. more about the people who are in the room on impeachment day, talking across political boundaries about what they're called to rather than just like the sordid headlines, right? I just think we all collectively need more of those stories in our lives. Yeah, so. and you know, the possibility of bringing a focus to the inner journey into politics, that's that's the challenge right now. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's what we're working on. <laughs> right on. I'm glad you're working on it and I'm excited for people to hear this and thanks again, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world's 
while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.